copies of God's Word in hand. Turning with me once again to the book of Habakkuk. Um, like I said last week, it is a very small, underused little book of the Old Testament. The easiest way to find it is probably to go to the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and start working your way backwards. When you get to, if you come to Nahum, you've gone too far, go back a little bit. The book of Habakkuk. Last week, we looked at all of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2. To just remind you of the context that we're reading in, the, uh, the prophet Habakkuk, he's different. There's actually not a ton of prophecy here. Um, he's not really proclaiming too much. But we'll see today he is doing a little bit of that. But it's really, a lot of it is just his prayer and God's answer to his prayer. Last week we saw his first prayer, his first, his first, his first instance of him crying out to God and saying, "God, why are you allowing all this injustice to come upon your chosen people?" And the ones who are doing the injustice are actually God's own people, the Israelites. The Israelites have become sinful. They have become wicked. They have. They are now practicing injustice, and their own people, other Israelites, probably the poor, probably the needy are suffering because of this. Habakkuk sees this and says, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? I feel like if you're if you're just, like I believe that you are, that you would be doing something about this. So why don't you? And so God answers this prayer. And that's what we saw in the second part. God comes to him and he says, God comes to him, he gives him an answer, but it's not the answer that Habakkuk wants. God comes to him and says, oh, I'm going to do something, but I am going to use the Babylonians to do it. I am going to punish the wicked. I'm going to punish my wicked people, and it will be by the hand of the Babylonian Empire. Now, this is a problem because the Babylonians are a whole lot worse than the Israelites. And it looks like this punishment that God is going to give them is going to be far worse than the evil that has been worked in Israel already. And so Habakkuk goes to God again with another petition and says, God, is it just of you to carry out your justice, to carry out your wrath? By using a nation, by using a people that is far more wicked than the people that you're punishing them, punishing them with? What gives? What gives? Now, as we come into chapter 2, as we come into chapter 2, the bulk of chapter 2 is going to be God's response in speaking about how he is going to bring judgment against the Babylonians. But before we get to that, today's text, we'll be studying chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. You kind of think of it as being a prologue, an introduction to this. And then it's a call for Habakkuk and for the call for those who will read his prophecy to believe and to trust in God. So before we read God's holy and inerrant word, let's go to him and ask that he would, might add his blessing to our time together. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, the words that we now hold in our hands are not the words of mere man, but are the words of God. They, it is a sharp, two-edged sword that will both cut and heal. Father, we would ask that it would cut us by convicting us of our sin and by ripping out the idols that are constantly being produced by our hearts. And Father, we ask that that wound might be immediately mended as the text testifies to your mercy toward us in Jesus Christ, who doesn't just merely forgive us of our sins, but empowers the Christian life, empowers us to put to death the deeds of the body. Father, we come to you with confidence, knowing 
that your answer to these things will be yes in the personal work of Jesus Christ. For Father, you love Jesus and you love us and you want us to be like him. So Father, make us like him. We'd ask that you would use your word in this sermon this morning to do so. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear now the word of God from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And the Lord answered me, said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, and hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Might he write its truth upon our hearts. So, as I mentioned, Habakkuk is a very underused little book. In fact, unless you're probably doing like a Bible reading plan that kind of takes you through the Bible in a year or in two years, there might be a good chance that maybe you've never even opened up the book of Habakkuk and have begun to read it. And because of that, as we go through the book and we read through it, a lot of it is not going to sound very familiar to you. It's just not. It's, it's, it's not even really necessarily quoted all that much in the rest of the Bible. There's one glaring exception to this rule, and remind, maybe you picked it out as we were reading through that there in verse 4. The words, the righteous shall live by faith. And as we were reading that, maybe we were thinking, why does that sound familiar? Why does that ring a bell? It's because it is quoted three times in the New Testament, and three very, very important parts. The first time it's quoted is going to be in the book of Romans in chapter 1. It's actually going to be part of Paul's theme statement for one of the most rich, darkly rich and theologically just beautiful texts in the entire Bible. It is the theme statement of it. The righteous shall live by his faith. It's quoted again in Galatians 3 for a very similar reason. And then later on in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I don't want to say that these three New Testament texts interpret uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 differently, but they do apply it in different ways. Next week, we're going to have we're going to look at this text again, but we're going to apply it in the way that Paul applies it in Romans 1 and Romans 2 and see what role does faith have in the salvation of God's people. So this is really going to be salvation by faith. But this morning, I want us to look at it and apply it in the way that Hebrews chapter 10 is going to apply. And the reason I want to start off with this is because the context of the book of Hebrews, as we'll see, is going to be very, very, very similar to the context of the book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, you have Israelites who are suffering and who are going to come across more suffering. In the book of Hebrews, you have Jewish Christians who are suffering and are about to become under even more suffering. It's really the same context, just separated by hundreds of years. And so as we do this, as we look at this, what it is to live by faith, particularly how we live by faith in the midst of trials, suffering, and persecution. When we do this, I want us to look at it 
in two different parts following Habakkuk's outline. First of all, we're going to look at the character of the unbeliever. The character of the unbeliever, or particularly unbelief. The character of unbelief. And then secondly, we'll look at the character of the righteous. The character of unbelief and the character of the righteous. Let's begin with the character of unbelief. One thing that I've noticed as I've been going through the book of Habakkuk is how many similarities there are between Habakkuk, our series in Habakkuk, and our series on the parable of the the parable of the sower, and particularly how what role faith plays in it. So here in verse five, if you look down there at the bottom of it, uh, the bottom of verse five. Let me read that for us again. It says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Then at the beginning of verse 4, he says, behold, his soul is puffed up and is not upright within him. This is a description of the nation of Babylon. They're puffed up with pride. They're mighty. They're victorious. They're running through everybody. The Assyrian Empire that came before them, they go through them like butter. The Egyptians just south of them, they run through them like a hot knife through butter. And what chances Israel have in actually doing this? They're puffed up. They're arrogant. They are prideful. But we can also apply this to us as individuals, particularly as it comes to our unbelief. And I say our unbelief because I'm not just speaking of unbelievers, those who have never confessed faith in Christ. I'm speaking of all of us. Whenever we sin, whenever we sin, we are confessing some type of unbelief in God. We are confessing some type of idolatry. And so I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here, but I think on almost every sense of someone rejecting the things of God, rejecting his gospel, rejecting his law, underneath it is a spirit of pride and a spirit of arrogance. So think back with me. Uh, to our to our sermon series on the parable of the sower, particularly when we talked about in those who are like the path, who who the word is sown but it never really grows. These are the ones who, if you remember, just immediately reject the word of God offhand. And we went through really three three ways that people just reject the word of God. The first way was was apathy. People who hear the word of God, they hear the gospel, they hear that they're a sinner, they hear that they need grace, that grace is offered in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And then what do they do? They just say, nah, I don't really care. That doesn't, that doesn't, really, that doesn't really matter to me. Underneath that is a sense of pride and a sense of arrogance. It is one that says, I don't really care about this because I have no need of it. I am self-sufficient. What apathy really is, it is a very, it's an extreme focus upon the self, particularly self-sufficiency. I don't care. So you can you can offer me, you can offer me a a a, a cure for diabetes. Me personally, I don't care. I don't have diabetes. You can offer me a cure for cancer, right? Me personally, I don't have cancer. It's not going to do me any good. It might do a lot of good for other people, but not for me. And when the gospel is offered to people, I don't have any need for that. I'm not perfect, but no one else is. I'm a lot better than most people. I don't. I don't need grace. I don't need that. Just get that away from. Get that away from me. And though there are some people who really think that, I don't think everyone 
is like that. For a lot of people, I think they want to put on a, I call it a mask of apathy, a mask that says, I don't care. When in actuality, I think they care quite a bit. I'll give you an example of this. When I was teaching school, it was my first year of teaching, was an eighth grade class. I had one student who was misbehaving in class. It wasn't his first time doing it. I was constantly having to get on to him. So I told him to move, move seats, move to the front of the class. And as he's moving his way up, all he does is declare to the class how he doesn't care. I don't care. You do this. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. And as he was talking, I stopped him and I said, you know, it seems to me, it seems to me that if you actually didn't care, you wouldn't talk about it. You wouldn't talk about it as much. People who don't actually care, they don't go around talking about what they don't care about because it doesn't really matter. Yet he did nothing but talk about it for about 30 minutes. That sounds like someone who cares. It was a mask that he was wearing. Well, what was that mask covering up? It could be the second thing, the second way that people reject the gospel, through fear. It hides apathy. uh, Putting on a mask of apathy, it can hide fear. R.C. Sproul talks about this a lot. I actually wrote a book about it. I can't remember the name of the book. But um, I think it was called The Psychology of Unbelief, The Psychology of Atheism. And in that book, he argues that there is no one who doesn't have a, no one who doesn't believe who denies the existence of God, who doesn't have a vested interest in not believing. And one of the things that causes them to have a vested interest in denying the existence of God, denying the things of God, is fear. This fear is highlighted in Romans chapter 1 when he said, when, when Paul says that all who practice such things, evil and wicked things, all of them are deserving of death. For all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's not good. Sure, if God is weak, if God is not holy, if God is like us, that's not too big of a deal. But if God is holy, 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 he cannot stand sin being in his presence and he must pour out his wrath upon it. You've ever heard of fight or flight? Fear is flight. It is a running. It is a hiding. It is a hiding from the wrath of God. It's like a child burying his, burying his face in his hands and in his lap, pretending like the danger isn't actually there. It's not apathy at all. It's fear. Unbelief, fear can cause us to hide. Well, on the other side of that, you have those who fight. These are those who hate the word of God, hate the things of God. And underneath this was this is really where you see highlighted the arrogance and the pride. One says, who does God think he is to tell me to repent of the things that I've done? Who is God? Who who are you, the Christian, to look down on me because of the way that I live my life? What it is, is a failure to bow the knee, to say, I am sufficient totally in and of myself. I need nothing outside of myself, certainly to tell me how I am to live, to tell me the difference between good and evil, and they fight and war against the God of creation, the God who has made himself known in the things that have been created, and ultimately in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. They can't stand it. They hate it, and they war against it. It is arrogance, and it is pride. It is a hyper. It is a. It is a hyper way of looking inward and seeing the self as being beautiful and lovely, and the things of God to be hideous. It is not apathy. Unbelief 
rather than being an apathy for the things of God, is in fact the opposite. It is a deep felt love for the God of the self. A deep felt love for a false idol. Now here's a question. When the eyes of our faith are upon a false idol, where do we end up? What ends up happening to these false idols? Turn your attention with me once again to verse uh, to verse five, the very first thing that is said, where uh, Habak- where God God through the prophet Habakkuk says that wine is a traitor. Now there are some people who take that little that little passage and they state they interpret it as God outlawing the use of alcohol, the use of wine. I don't I don't think that's it. If that is what the prophet is doing, how in the world are the Jews going to celebrate Passover? Wine was a very central part of that actual feast. I don't think that's what he's doing. And also in the context, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, Babylon's the bad guys. God has a lot of negative things to say about the Babylonians. And I'm sure that they were overcome with drunkenness, sexual promiscuity. But what he's driving the focus at is this sense of arrogance and and, and pride. What does wine have to do with that? You can be like, can you be humble and enjoy a glass of wine? Well, yes, of course you can. So it doesn't even make sense in the context. So what exactly is he saying? The majority of commenters on this, and I think I think they're right here, by saying that wine is a traitor. Wine is a stand-in, is a personification of the spoils of war. When they go into a place, a nation, and they destroy it, they don't just destroy it and then move on about their business. No, they plunder it. They take the good of it, and they become drunk on it. Essentially, what what, Habak- what God, through the prophet Habakkuk, is saying is that the Babylonians have become drunk on their own victory. And it is ultimately going to be their victory and their false confidence in themselves that is going to lead to their downfall. Essentially, it's going to be decadence, decay. Remember what uh, Habakkuk said in chapter 1, verse 11. He says of Babylon, they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, here's the thing. Their own might is a false god. And the scriptures are very clear. False gods, false idols are dead. You know what dead things do? They rot and they decay. When our eyes are put upon false idols, as good and as beautiful as they might seem, that beauty, that loveliness is going to get old and it's going to begin to rot it's going to be it's going to begin to decay and then what's going to inevitably happen is that we're going to be left in your hands the rotting disgusting corpse of whatever the god of your life was why because it is not the one it is not the true and it is not the living god who is and who was and who is to come it will die in your own hands and you will be left wondering what was it all for what does it matter? What does it mean? I'll give you an example of this. I, a little background information. When I was young, particularly in junior high, I loved professional wrestling. Loved it. Like, if you'd, if you'd asked me, like, who was an example of a real-life superhero? My answer, Hulk Hogan. Like, no hesitation. I loved professional wrestling. Um, got bored. It's about a year or so ago. Turned on the TV. Wrestling was on. I was like, yeah, I mean, 
I'll relive the good old days. I watched it for about 15 minutes. That's about all I could stomach. I don't know if it's changed or I've changed or something like that, but either way, I can't stand to watch it anymore. But even though I don't really care to actually watch professional wrestling, something that fascinates me are stories about the lives of professional wrestlers. I mean, they live very different lives. For one thing, they're almost never at home. I mean, they have shows in different cities on Mondays and on Thursdays and then Saturdays. They're addicted to working out, using steroids on top of that. Uh, it really, the, the, the work just consumes their life. And then what ends up happening is, is when you, they do these interviews with these wrestlers who are kind of older, they're all hunched over, they're broken down, and they're miserable. there's been just divorce after divorce after divorce. They're addicted to painkillers and all these things, and their lives are just messes. Uh, One example of this is a guy, one of my favorites growing up was a guy by the name of Scott Hall. I saw saw an interview with him. Uh, uh, I think it was on ESPN. I can't remember where it was. And it was unreal to see this guy who at one time was just big and brutish, guy and he's in a wheelchair hunched over could hardly speak and he's the, the, the interviewer is asking all these questions about like all the abuse that his body took and particularly all the drugs that he took to try to numb that and he was asking about the drugs and he said he said well the drugs might have started trying to try to numb my physical pain he said but when it got really bad is when it tried to numb the pain that i had inside he said, because I had spent my entire adult life sitting in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people wearing T-shirts with my face on it, screaming my name, and then all of a sudden, one day, it all stopped. And the silence was far more deafening than all of those screaming fans, and I did not know how to cope with that. He had become addicted that sense of pride. He had become addicted to his own idol. And now there, sitting in that wheelchair, he's there, left there with that rotting corpse of an idol, and he's wondering, what was it all for? That's obviously an extreme example. But no matter what, no matter what your false idol is, well, your your money, your your job, how well you, how, how good of a mother you are, how good of a father you are, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. One day you'll be at the end, you'll be in the bed, and you'll be sitting there wondering, what was it all for? What good did it actually do? You'll be left with a rotting corpse, just like the Babylonians will be. Our faith must be placed into the God who is, who was, and who is to come. And this brings us to our next point. What is the character of the righteous? Habakkuk's answer to this question is fairly simple. Faith. There in verse 4, he says, The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, I want to give you a definition for faith. Now, our catechism has a great definition for it. Confession does as well. Hebrews 11, which we'll actually look at a little bit later, has probably maybe the most famous definition of faith. But if you want to define it in the context of Habakkuk, I think this suffices well. If you want to write it down, you can. Faith is a confidence and the word of God that perseveres through suffering. Faith is a confidence in the word of God that perseveres through suffering. Let's break that down into two parts. First of all, 
a confidence in the word of God. There in verse 2, the very first thing as God begins to speak, the first thing out of his mouth is, write this down. He's telling Habakkuk here, don't write this down for your own benefit. Put it on a post-it note. Put it in your back pocket. Maybe you'll get back around to it just in case you forget that I said this. No, he's asking him to write this down, not only for his good, but for the good of God's people, for the good of Israel. I think you see this when you go down a little bit, when he says, make the vision plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Now that's a bit confusing there, the he who runs. I think an accurate interpretation of that is that he who runs is most likely a herald, a messenger, the bringer of the good news. You can think of it as being the preacher. Um, Back in those days, kings would put forth, put out a decree or something like that. Well, the king wouldn't go from town to town delivering it. He would have a messenger who would go before him to give these messages. Prophets had the same people. They were called sons of the prophets. I think that's probably who this is referencing to. He's like, write this down, put it on tablets, give it to your messenger, give it to your herald, and make sure that these words are in the ears of all of my people. Why? Because they need it. For the Christian, for that one who is in covenant with God, the Bible isn't just a, a privilege, passing fancy. It's something that you desperately need. It is the word of your father to his children. And you know when you're going to need it the most? When you are in suffering. That's what the righteous in Israel are undergoing when this is being written. They're under the suffering of their former uh, brothers, according to the flesh of their fellow Jews. Later on, they're going to be under even more suffering at the hands of the Babylonians. And, and, and God is saying to Habakkuk, write this down, because they are going to need it. They're going to need it. Now, here's the thing, a little point of application here. A lot of people, they will start reading their Bibles in the midst of suffering, when things get bad. I was talking to somebody uh, a little while ago uh, who was not really going through like suffering or pain or anything like that, but was going through a, a pretty stressful time in their lives and said to kind of combat that, they had you know picked up their Bibles and had rededicated themselves to having a, a daily devotional time, a daily reading time in the Word of God. And I said, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that that's what this has done. Like anytime you have suffering or pain or stress in your life, if it drives you to the Word of God, then it was a blessing from the Holy Spirit. It was doing its job. But I said, here's the thing, though. The Word of God isn't just given to you so that when you're suffering, then you can go to it and have confidence. It is given to you to prepare you for it. To prepare you for it. It's coming. It's coming. Maybe, maybe you're like me. Maybe you haven't gone through a ton of suffering in your life. Maybe it's because it's because you're young. Uh, maybe it's because you just had a you've just had a very blessed life. It doesn't matter. Time will spare no soul. If you've never suffered, it's coming. It will happen. It's just a matter of time. The word of God prepares you for it, and it's very upfront and honest, just like Habakkuk is being. It's coming. It might be about now. It might even become worse. How do we prepare ourselves? We pick up the Bible and we read not just what it says about our suffering, but what it says about God. 
we talked about this in the parable of the sower. If our roots are laid down in the shallow soil of feelings, stuff, and things, it'll be blown away like the chaff is blown away by the wind. But if it's anchored in who God is, if it's anchored in His Word, then it is a sure, it is a sure faith that will stand up against suffering. And this is the second part of our definition. Faith not only is a confidence in the Word of God, but it will also persevere through suffering. And that's not a myth, and that's not an if, that's not a maybe. It will. It will. When I said the chaff and the chaff being blown by the wind, there I'm I'm, refer- I'm referencing Psalm one. I'm referencing Psalm one. Psalm one describes the one who is righteous, the man of faith, as being one who delights in the law of God, who meditates on it day and night, and is therefore like a tree that is planted by rivers of living water. The, the, the storms of life can come, and he's going to be just fine. He's going to hold firm in the middle of it. But the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that is blown away by the wind. It's like if I'm talking to a, a church full of farmers, so you probably know how this works. You take a piece of grain, the, the chaff is like the, the husk, the thin husk that's over it. You rub it in your hand, and the husk will break off of it. The grain is heavy, it's weighty, but the chaff is so thin, you just blow on it and it goes away. If your faith is rooted in anything other than God, it has no weight to it. It will be blown away by the cares of the world. It will be blown away by the fancy philosophies of, of this world and people who seem to be influential. It will not be firm. You'll be all over the place. But it's not just philosophy that can do this. It can also be suffering and pain, and hardship. But a faith that has saved, a faith that is true, it will persevere. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. The Before I read, the context of Hebrews is very, very similar to the book of Habakkuk. These are Jewish Christians who, as this is being written, are undergoing persecution and suffering at the hands of their Jewish brothers according to the according to according to the flesh. This is who they're suffering. The book of Hebrews is also saying it's going to get worse. Because eventually it's not just going to be the Jews who will be persecuting you. It's going to be the Gentiles as well. It's going to be the Romans. It's going to be Caesar who is going to be doing this. And when that happens, it's just going to multiply it exponentially. You think this is bad? Just wait. So they are suffering, and he is preparing them for more suffering. And here, when we come, Hebrews can be tough for us because sometimes we read it and we think, are, is, the, is the saying, once saved, always saved, is it true? Because he seems to be talking about a lot about people leaving the church and leaving the faith. That is not what this book is designed to do. What he is doing here is, through warnings, Through warnings, he is encouraging you to persevere in faith and reminding you of what you have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have a name that is above every other name. You have one who is higher than the angels, the one who angels bow down and worship. You have a great high priest and a great high, a great high priest, a great sacrifice that all these, that all the things of the Old Testament cannot hold up to. So he's begging the Jews, don't run back to them. Don't run back to them persevere. Why? Because faith 
must persevere. If it's not, it was never faith of all. As John, as the apostle, the apostle of love says, says, those who have left the faith proved that they were never of us. It might have looked like faith, but it was not the real thing. Let me read for you now. Um, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 37. He says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come, uh, will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What does faith do? Faith doesn't just lay hold to the righteousness and the work of Christ. It preserves the soul when it is found, when it is located, when it is focused in on the work of Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago. A good way of looking at this that I've always found to be helpful is faith, although always moving forward, always moving for the goal, is always looking back. It is always looking at what Christ has done. But much like the cares of the world, suffering can take our eyes off the past and can put it on the here and now. It can focus it in on the pain. And when we look at the pain, when we look in the past, we can see clearly what Christ has done and see the sufficiency of it. But when we look here, it's veiled in darkness. And we can ask, why? And when we ask why, we're really asking this, God, why can't I know? You see, the Bible is full of great examples of how all things work together for good. Joseph's a good one. Betrayed, sold into slavery, falsely imprisoned. But at the end of it, he can say, he can say what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You can look, but we have, but when we do that, we have a, we have the, we have the privilege of four thousand years of of hindsight. If you're in the middle of pain, you don't have hindsight. You're in the middle of it. Let me, let me share a story from Pastor Joe. This was something Pastor Joe Still he did my installation service. Told me he said when he was ministering in Hattiesburg. In the middle of the night, he got a call from a uh, from a young mother whose child had just been taken to the hospital, had suddenly become very ill. And so Pastor Seal got up, got dressed, went to the hospital. When he walked into the hospital room, it was just mere moments after the doctor had left and told them that there was nothing they could do for the child. The child was hooked up to a ventilator, and in just a number of hours was no longer going to be with them that they all needed to call the family and come say your goodbyes. I couldn't imagine the pain that that family is going through. But when he, when Pastor Still walks through that door, the grandmother comes to him, grabs him by his jacket, pulls him in close and says, why is this happening? I, I want you to tell me. I want to know why this is happening. And I was encouraged because Pastor Still, who I look up to, gave the same answer that I would have given. I don't know. I don't know what good. I don't know why this is happening. But here's the good news. The Bible never tells us that we are to know. It tells us that we are to believe. We are commanded to believe. And we are commanded to trust. That is difficult when it hurts. 
but nonetheless, we are called to take account of the character of the one who called us, the character of the one who loved us, and the character of the one who gave himself to us, and say, it is well with my soul. Though the world gives way around me, though my, though, though my I'm shaken to my core, I know the one who holds me. I know the one who gave himself for me. I know where my hope lies. It is not in this darkness. It is not in this dark providence. It is in the light of the gospel of my Lord, my Savior, Jesus Christ. That is where my hope lies. We are not called to know, but we are called to believe. And so when we're in a situation like that, Lord, I hope I'm never in a situation like that. I hope none of us are ever in a situation like that. But if we are, and we're crying out, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. God's answer in the present is usually what is said in verse 3. For still, uh, for still the vision, the answer to the prayer, awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not delay. God's answer may seem slow but it will always come and it will come in God's own perfect time. This may not be what we want to hear, but it is what we need to hear and it is what we need to believe. As it is written, the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, though around my soul gives way, your Son righteousness is my hope and my stay. Father, you have given us a sure anchor in the storms of life. Father, we'd ask that by your spirit, the chains that bind us to that anchor might be strengthened, and that we might grow our confidence. For Father, you are just, and you cannot lie, and you have spoken, and it is true. Write this truth upon our heart. May it never leave us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.